Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to year two of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. From Matty Olchek to Bob Costas, Mike North to Pat Foley, they reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dogs since 1893. Find them on the web at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. Honored the legacy, pioneer the future. Visit them at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by Serenow Law Group, top-notch pros in reducing your rising real estate taxes. They're on the web at Serenow.com by BetUS, America's favorite sportsbook for a lot of reasons. Check them out at BetUS.com. And by the Polina Market, purveyors of the finest meats in the Chicagoland area since 1949. Visit them at PolinaMarket.com. This week, we feature the longtime Chicago sports journalist and popular voice of Northwestern football and basketball, Dave Bennett. Brent Musburger had just left the station. He and Brad Palmer had been the, the two sportscasters there. And then Brad would start to have some faith in me. He would send me out to, to events so that within a couple of years, I would fill in for Rich on the afternoon sportscasts on the weekends. And then we got the Bears in 1977. And so I was became the studio producer for the Bears. Dave Bennett has been a familiar voice on Chicago radio and TV for some 40 years. He's best known for his work as the longtime and award-winning voice of the Northwestern Wildcats. And he's adding to the list of Northwestern alum who will or have appeared on this podcast, including Mike Greenberg, Michael Wilbon, Rick Tellender, Pat Fitzgerald, Jim Phillips, and Dave Repson. With that in mind, Dave Bennett, tell me a story I don't know. Well, George, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm going to go back to... January 26, 1986, because I think that's a day that uh, is very close to the heart of a lot of people who will be listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. uh, the day of Super Bowl 20. And I was at the time working with the Bears radio crew. I, I produced the games in the booth. I did some pregame and halftime work on air. I produced the broadcast with, with Wayne Larrabee and Jim Hart and Dick Butkus on WGN, and uh, and I also did the postgame show, well, uh, along with Chuck Swirsky. So uh, it just so happened that that was the first year that WGN was carrying the Bears, and of course, everybody knows what happened. So fast forward to New Orleans on that Sunday, January 26th. One of my roles was to accompany Dick Butkus to record his pregame interview with Mike Ditka. Now, normally we did that at the stadium, but 
seeing as how it was the Super Bowl, we figured maybe it would be a good idea to do it ahead of time. So it, it was decided that we would go to Ditka's suite in the team hotel, record the interview. So we go up to wherever his suite was, a very large suite, as I remember. We go in, and Mike's waiting for us. And what I remember about it is that he was very calm, at least outwardly. Now, I don't know what he was like on the inside, but I think everybody kind of had a feeling at that point what was going to happen later that day. So we get done with the interview, and now it's a couple hours before game time, and Dick and I decide we're going to just walk over to the Superdome. We're going to leave the hotel and just walk to the game. And so we're walking not on the main streets, but we're taking some some of the side streets over to the uh, to the dome. And so I'm walking alongside Dick Butkus. Now, keep in mind, Dick Butkus would be recognizable in, oh, I don't know, Laramie, Wyoming. But on this particular day in New Orleans, everybody who was driving by or stopped in traffic that was gridlocked around us realized that's Dick Butkus, one of the greatest bears of all time. And they're all stopping and leaning out of their cars and yelling to Dick, go get them, Butkus, and, and <laughs> let's get them today and go Bears and all this. Butkus had just the greatest reaction to this because, look, let's face it, you would think he'd get tired of, of all the adulation and, and being recognized and not being able to go out in public without people coming up to him. He was savoring every minute of this because I think he was as excited as anybody that the Bears not only were in the Super Bowl, but we all knew we're about to win the Super Bowl. And it was just the coolest reaction, I thought, just watching Dick react to the fans who were just savoring this really special moment in Chicago sports history. That's really something because there are so many stories from that Super Bowl and that bizarre week that took place in New Orleans. Yeah, and it was my first time in New Orleans. And all I could really figure out was in our hotel, which was the team hotel, but also there were fans there, obviously, to get a cup of coffee in the lobby, you had to give maybe 20, 25 minutes out of your day. It was Every place we went was crowded and, and jammed. And, and at some point, you know, it's almost, it got a little tiring. Now, I'm not complaining. I mean, it seems like a wonderful city. I have good friends there. But I will tell you one of my fondest memories of the week. I wasn't there with the Jim McMahon mooning incident. I wasn't there. I think I might have been there when Les Grobstein held court with the media. Yeah. Um, that, was, that was another great moment that yeah. But I remember we went to a sponsor event and there were these parties every night and all kinds of big shindigs and True Value Hardware held a party at a restaurant in probably near the French Quarter and attending the event, Dick Butkus and Ray Nitschke. And what I remember is sitting at a table into the late hours of the evening with Butkus and Nitschke telling stories. Now, I couldn't tell you today, George, any of those stories. All I can tell you is I was just so fascinated at the moment in sitting there listening to these two guys talk about the old days in football 
days that I remembered as a kid that it's just something that I thought, I wish I could record this right now, but that, that wouldn't be appropriate and I probably couldn't use half of it anyway. By the way, I think it's fairly safe to say, Dave, you're an institution at a great institution, witness the broadcast booth at Ryan Field, which is named in your honor. That's a big deal. It is. It is. I was blown away when it happened. It was my uh, 25th anniversary calling Northwestern football, and it was the opener that year. And I knew something was going on, but I didn't know exactly what. And I, the day before, they said, hey, could you, uh, could you talk to Jim Phillips at halftime, the athletic director? And I said, sure. And that wasn't unusual. That's a, a fairly common request um, for, can you get a halftime guest on or carve out some time and I said sure and we'll have our our halftime host can can do the interview and they said no we'd like you to do it and so I had no idea anything was up I said hey Jim great day for an opener and uh, I think unfortunately things were not going very well for the Wildcats that day against uh, Cal as I recall but at one point Jim says David we want to congratulate you on your 25th anniversary and if you'll turn around and look at the door to your booth and they they had covered a plaque that was on the door and they pulled the wrapping off of it and in front of me and announced that this was, the booth was now named in my honor. And I, honestly, I was just overwhelmed. I didn't know what to say. You know, the people at Northwestern and it's been a long run and they've been wonderful to me and they've, they've been uh, just terrific. And, uh, you know, I couldn't thank them enough. And to this day, when I walk in there and I see that, that plaque, Seven years later, I still kind of think, uh, wow, did that really happen? Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. The Super Bowl is set. March Madness will be here soon, and BetUS Sports is your home for all of it, plus the NBA, NHL, UFC, and PGA Tour. Sign up now, and first-time bettors will get a 125% bonus with our promo code STORY22. That's STORY22. Future odds, live betting, and great parlay plays also await you at BetUS. BetUS. You bet, you win, you get paid. Go to BetUS.com and remember our code, STORY22. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Dave Ennett on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know.
And to think when you arrived at Northwestern in 1974, both the football and basketball teams weren't, eh, they weren't very good. That's being nice about it, Dave. And as a student and eventually the play-by-play voice, you had to endure some very, very tough seasons. Time runs out. Michigan recording a 38 to nothing victory over Northwestern. Doing it with the big plays that sealed the victory and sent Northwestern to its 7th and 27th consecutive loss, depending on the way you're counting. You know, it's funny. The first day I was on campus as a student in 1973 was the first football game of the season. I was not there. I was actually arriving on campus that day. And uh, John Pont was the head coach, the late John Pont. That was his first game as coach at Northwestern. He later became the athletic director. And they beat Michigan State. Uh, I think at, at, Dyke, at then Dyke Stadium, 14 to 10. Don't ask me why I know that, but there weren't all that many wins over my four years as a student. And I did games then for the student station, uh, a few games. And sometimes I cringe when I go back and listen to the tapes. But yeah, I mean, there's no question. I took over in 1990 doing the games on radio on WBBM. And they had gone 0-11 the year before. Mm. And so, I mean, that's that's tough. And so my very first game was at Dyke Stadium against Duke. And I believe that Duke scored with under 40 seconds to go to win the game. And uh, yeah, that was there were some couple of tough years there, although they did win a few that year and they won a few the following year under uh, Francis Pay, but he was let go at the end of the 91 season and Gary Barnett came in and things began to, to get better. Yeah, they did. Tell me a story. I don't know what it was like in 1996 for you to call the Cats' first appearance in the Rose Bowl since 1949. ABC Sports College Football presents the 50th Rose Bowl game matching the Big Ten and the Pac-10, the Southern California Trojans and the Northwestern Wildcats. Well, I'll go back to September of 1995, and that was the day that uh, the Cats went into Notre Dame Stadium and really shocked the world, and that was the beginning of it. They've done it! The Northwestern Wildcats have upset the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame! Big time! It's all over! And Northwestern has beaten Notre Dame for the first time since 1962. And I remember it was a beautiful, an absolutely spectacular day. And before we left, the team stayed in Michigan City. And before we left the hotel, I went out for a run and I came back and I ran into Greg Meyer, the offensive coordinator, and, and just a wonderful guy. And I ran into Greg in a stairwell and I said, how you feeling? He said, we just told the kids, don't carry Gary off the field after we win. I was like, hmm, okay, that's 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 a pretty bold statement. Yeah. Okay, I'm 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 in. I'm good with that. And I remember we're talking about, can you imagine? Because we both felt like it was doable. Uh, two years earlier, we'd been down there, and the Cats had the lead in the third quarter. And just watching them during that summer in camp, just kind of felt this team was was on the cusp. And 
I just remember thinking, can you imagine what this would be like making this walk back after the game? And sure enough, about three hours later, we're making that walk and uh, met up with a bunch of former players and some, some boosters after the game and a local bar in South Bend just to kind of relive the moments of the game before we hit the road. And I remember saying to somebody, you know, it's never going to be the same here again, regardless of what happens the rest of the season. You know, things have changed now. All of a sudden, Northwestern's on the map and uh, everything kind of got amped up. And, and of course, two days later, uh, the quarterback, Steve Schnurr, is on Good Morning America and the national media descends on Evanston and they're in the top 25 and all this is going on. And they had a bye week. And of course, those, the next game was against Miami of Ohio, coached by Randy Walker. Oh, yeah. And they came in and, and uh, came from 21 points down to beat the Cats in the closing seconds on a, on a field goal. So at that point, I remember sitting in the booth and looking out of the field saying, yeah, man, maybe I jumped the gun. You know, maybe this is, this is going to be more of the same. Are we, are we ever going to get it right here? Are we ever going to be that, that program? And then the following week, a good Air Force team came in. They took care of them. They, uh, they beat Indiana to open Big Ten play. And they were off and running, uh, ran the table in the Big Ten. And along the way, I, I would ask people, I'd say, Gary Barnett, his assistant coaches, who are a great bunch of, bunch of guys. And I'd say, what, I mean, how do you explain what's happening here? And you would invariably get, well, you know, this guy's really bought in. And, and this team has bought into the idea of belief without evidence that, that yeah, you haven't won yet, but, but you can still believe that you can get it done. And they began to see the results and they went to Michigan and won that game and they beat Penn State and they beat Iowa for the first time in what, 21 years. But I, invariably, I would get this kind of Michael Jordan-esque shrug from them like, okay, it's, it is kind of tough to explain. And, and it was. And so they, they end up the season, close it out, clinch the Big Ten championship with a win at Purdue. And the following week, we're all there at Northwestern watching the Ohio State-Michigan game and watching Charles Woodson come up with a key interception uh, that uh, helped send the Cats to Pasadena. So it was, it was just an amazing ride that whole year. You mentioned the name of Randy Walker, who, of course, eventually became the head coach of Northwestern, tragically passed. And then Pat Fitzgerald, who was really young, took over. And he's been there now for a long, long time. And he is quite a character, to say the least. And he's quite a football coach, too. No question about it. I think what, what's been really neat about this whole experience, George, has been watching the program and and I loved Randy and everybody did and he did it did a wonderful job there coming in after after Gary left to go to Colorado and I mean Gary started it Randy picked it up really brought the spread offense to where it, it exploded in college football with that 2000 season and especially the 54-51 win over Michigan but then Fitz takes over and I can't imagine worst possible circumstances to to assume that responsibility 
Thursday, Fitzgerald played and won a very emotional opener at Miami of Ohio. That's the school where Randy Walker was a great running back. His memory honored by both schools before the game. Very somber. And the widow of Randy Walker, Tammy Walker, was there for the coin toss. You could see the emotion on the face of Northwestern and Fitzgerald. It was an emotional scene in the locker room. After the game, they presented the game ball to Tammy Walker. A tremendous moment. It was about eight weeks before their opener, which, by the way, was going to be at Miami of Ohio, which was Randy Walker's alma mater. It was a very tough decision, I think, for the president of the university, Henry Beanin, and Mark Murphy, the athletic director, because they were taking a chance on a guy who had never been a coordinator, never been a head coach, uh, just 31 years old. But in one sense, it wasn't that much of a gamble because I think everybody knew that Fitz was going to be the head coach one day and that he had that certain something you have to have to, to do that job. And so after a few days went by, respectfully, after uh, Randy had passed, uh, they, they announced that Fitz would be the new head coach. You know, we've talked so much football, but Northwestern's basketball program has had too few ups and many downs through a cadre of coaches while you were a student and then behind the mic. There was the legendary Tex Winter, then Rich Falk, Bill Foster, Ricky Birdsong, and Kevin O'Neill. And during that stretch of 28 years, Dave, just three appearances in the NIT. Someone who was born, say, I don't know, 20 years ago might utter how is this possible? So I ask you, how is that possible? <laughs> you know, I never quite figured that out, George. I mean, I, I thought if you go back when I was a student, Tex Winter came in as the head coach. And of course, Chicagoans know Tex mainly because of his time as an assistant to Phil Jackson in the triangle offense uh, with the Bulls. Unfortunately, they didn't have a ton of talent there, and but they had in my mind, maybe still the greatest player in Northwestern history. But Billy was great, but there wasn't enough around him. And then they tried different things. Uh, Ricky Birdsong, uh, I remember the year he, he had his, um, his so-called walk on the wild side. They started out 9-0, and um, but, but they couldn't sustain it. And Kevin O'Neill came in his first year. He got some terrific recruits. He got the Mr. Basketball out of the state of Iowa. And, uh, and yet these guys just for whatever reason, it didn't really pan out and they had some, they had some talent there. Now, now I'll say this. I thought Bill Carmody did a wonderful job. Yeah. He was there for 13 years. He was there for 13 years. Uh, they made, I, I want to say three NIT appearances. Actually it was four. Four. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and they, they were close and a couple of times, it looked like this was going to be the breakthrough year and then a key injury, a key case of mono, mm -hmm. something would happen that would knock them off track. But, uh, you know, Chris Collins, I think with his, with his pedigree and with his background at Duke, I think when he came in, you, you immediately sensed a change. And finally, that 2017 team with, with Collins did. 1.7 to go in a tie game. Taphorn heaves it down the floor. Got it. Part of the catch. Puts it up. Yes! Wildcats yes! win! Wildcats win! Derek Parton at the buzzer for the win! And the Wildcats have beaten Michigan 67 
to 65. And, uh, you know, they've just had trouble getting back to that level since then. And uh, I, I think they're, they're going to get back there. I just, you know, who can say for sure when it's going to be, but I'm pretty optimistic about where, where they're headed. Think about this, Dave. You were buying the mic for the first time that Northwestern was in the Rose Bowl since 1949. But better yet, you were behind the microphone for the first time. Northwestern made the NCAA tournament, which was hard to believe. It was true, and you were there. The number eight seed out of the West. There they are, the Northwestern Wildcats. And in their first ever NCAA tournament game, the Northwestern Wildcats are moving on in the big dance, 68. 66, and the eighth-seeded Wildcats advance to take on top seed Gonzaga on Saturday. The whole experience was great. What what I remember about it was that uh, Northwestern chartered a plane to bring staff and, and families and a few close friends out the day of the game. And I got a call from... Um, my friend Mike Poliski at Northwestern, who at the time was senior associate AD for external affairs. Mike called and said, would, would your wife like to come to the NCAA tournament? And I said, are you, let me ask her. So I called her. She said, yeah, that, okay, I'll do that. Because she wanted to be there. And I was there for like, I don't know, five, six days. So when they got to Salt Lake City, they bust everybody to some big bar where I believe the aforementioned Michael Wilbon and Mike Greenberg might have been officiating. And, and Fitz, of course, <laughs> got up on stage. And my uh, and my wife told me the story. I was I was getting ready for the broadcast, obviously, but I thought it was a really cool thing to do because all of those people in some way had some role and in, in, in the success that this program was having. And deserve to be there. And I'm sure it was no small expense to bring them all out there. But I mentioned Billy McKinney earlier, George, and Billy addressed the team, got emotional. He got choked up. He talked about what this meant to him. And that was a recurring theme over and over again, how much them finally doing this meant to these players who had given so much, but come up short in past years. It was a really cool and really emotional moment would you like to save money <laughs> who wouldn't how about saving money on your real estate taxes i have and did so thanks to serenal law group accomplished professionals ready to put money back in your pocket all chicago properties were reassessed by the cook county assessor's office and some of you got eye-opening increases serenal law group has the ability to lower that the deadline to file your 2021 appeal is 30 days after your township opens for appeals at the board of review so don't waste a minute contacting serenal law group so you you can save. There are no fees, so you don't have to pay a dime unless they save you money. And take it from me, they've saved me thousands. And they do it in a professional and friendly manner that makes your life a whole lot easier. Serenow Law Group handles appeals throughout the greater Chicagoland area from residential, commercial, or industrial property. They're ready to fight on your behalf, so you don't pay more than your fair share. Visit their website, serenow.com, that's S-A-R-A-N-O-W, or call them at 312-373-0015. Mention promo code OFFMAN, that's O-F-M-A-N, to get a discounted fee on your 2021 property tax appeal. Contact Serenal Law Group. 
S-A-R-A-N-O-W-N. Start saving. Back in the day, Dave, and I can say safely back in the day, when it comes to the two of us, radio sports was exploding. And this was before sports talk radio. Seemed like every station in town had a sportscaster. And actually, while you were at Northwestern, you were hired, only you didn't exactly start doing sports. No, I didn't. I um, I was hired at uh, WBBM. <laughs> they, they hired four of us who were students at Northwestern. One guy, fellow by the name of Larry Pintak, went on to become a CBS News correspondent. One of the others was Brian Davis, who you know. And oh, Brian yeah. worked in, in Chicago for a long time and later became the play-by-play voice of the Seattle Seahawks and later the Oklahoma City Thunder on TV. But we all worked for uh, the uh, grand sum. And keep in mind, this was 1975, I believe, uh, 2.15 hour to answer the phone in the newsroom. They had just installed the news tip hotline and it was literally a red phone in the newsroom and people <laughs> could call in and give news tips. And uh, if it was the best news tip of the week, you won 78 bucks. So it was our job to answer the phone, write down the news tip, get the name, phone number of the, the tipster and, and file them in this very safe and secure lockbox. So that's how I started and I then, worked as a, they called them desk assistants, kind of a, a gopher in the newsroom, ripping out the wire copy off the teletype machines, which don't exist anymore. No, it's really hard when we say the word, I understand I know. what you mean, but if you, you say the word, first of all, you say the word telephone for somebody under 30, they go, what's a telephone? Yeah, exactly. Teletype? What? Yeah. Uh, so true. And, but at the same time, I had this love of sports and the people who hired me, John Haltman, who was the news director. So John and Rich King hired me. And Rich at the time was the managing editor in the newsroom. He wanted to do sports. So he did their weekend sports because they had one sports person. Brent Musburger had just left the station. He and Brad Palmer had been the, the two sportscasters there. So mm -hmm. Brad was going solo and doing mornings and afternoons. And so he... He needed help, and I was there in the evenings a lot, so I would kind of take care of his area in the newsroom and make sure there was a fresh ribbon on his teletype machine and uh, make sure his his audio was ready for the morning, that sort of thing. And, and then Brad would start to have some faith in me. He would send me out to, to events to get some, some post-game sound or whatever, and eventually uh, trusted me to do that kind of thing. And so that created an avenue for me in sports so that within a couple of years, I was, I would fill in for Rich on the afternoon sportscasts on the weekends. And then uh, Brad would give me some assignments. And then we got the Bears in 1977. And so I was, became the studio producer for the Bears and gradually had my responsibilities expand. But I was still doing news. That was still what was really paying the bills for me. You know, I think every person I have interviewed has had some connection with the legendary Harry Carey, and you did too. Tell me a story I don't know what that experience was like. Harry is great. Plus, well, is there from Mishawaka, Indiana, the Athletic Association. Father and son and daughter group. There's a pencil of it outside. 
so I'm, I'm at BBM and I was, by this point, I was full-time in sports and the station took the White Sox and I believe it would have been 1980. It was right before the strike. So that was like 81, right? So as part of it, Harry uh, and our, our general manager at the time, uh, William C. O'Donnell, uh, who had at, at one point been at KMOX in St. Louis. And of course, Harry was there doing the Cardinals. So they went way back. Harry wanted to do a talk show. He wanted to do a sports talk show at either leading into the Sox games at night or on nights the Sox were off, he would come into the studio. But they wanted someone to drive the show. So, so either Rich King or myself would be the co-pilot with Harry for those shows. And Harry was absolutely great. I mean, he, he could not, he didn't know me. Uh, maybe he'd seen me in the press box once in a while. You know, he'd offer take me out to dinner and I wish I'd taken him up on that more. But Harry would come from the ballpark. If the Sox played a day game, he'd come in and uh, sometimes he'd bring whoever was at the ballpark along with him. In this case, the Sox would play Baltimore. And so who comes in? We went on at 6.30. It was 6.30 to 8. And Harry comes strolling down the hall at 6.30 McClure Court with Earl Weaver. Oh, my goodness. And so in the studio, Harry and Earl Weaver, a couple of Hall of Famers, and they sit down. This is going to be 90 minutes of the two of them. And we had, we had a, a kid who was helping us produce, a young man by the name of Jeff Finkelman, I remember. And Harry, Harry said, hey, Jeff. And he pulls out a 20 or a 10 or whatever. He said, there was a white-hand pantry across the street from the studio. He's, and he says, Jeff, go over and grab a, a six-pack of Budweiser. So, <laughs> I knew this right? story was coming. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I start the show at 6.30, turn it over to Harry. <laughs> Harry and Earl Weaver are popping Budweiser's and, and just sitting there telling baseball stories and, and talking about baseball rules and things they like and don't like about the game. And it was fascinating. I wish I had a tape of it. I don't think I have a tape of it anywhere, but just 90 minutes of the two of them and and of course so much baseball knowledge and it was fascinating but but harry we that was also during the baseball strike remember they used to have chicago fest at navy pier sure yeah and so every radio station was out there doing shows they decided we would set up our trailer out there on navy pier and harry and i would go out there and do his show from 6 30 to 8 every night and I remember watching Harry just was a magnet for people. And, uh, and, and he had a, he had a large female following. I'll tell you that. And, uh, a lot of pretty girls. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> he could get away with saying that dad, I don't uh, uh, they things are a little different, but, uh -huh. but Harry, you know, he just, he enjoyed the moment. He, he had fun doing it. He, he had such joy when he was behind a microphone, you, you could see it. And I just, uh, it, many years later, when I came back to WGN, when I came to GN the, um, in 1984, uh, Harry was there doing the Cubs and he called our general manager, Dan Fabian, and just told him how glad he was that they brought me back and uh, that, uh, that just, uh, you know, meant the world to me.
Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Now let me tell you a story about Dave and I, you don't know. And please forgive me, Dave, as I heap a little praise on you publicly. It was just after a rather short run and the demise of Webio in 2009. It was June, I was looking for work. I called Dave, who had nothing at the time, but three weeks later asked if I would like to do some part-time work. Well, I jumped at the opportunity, only I had a little issue with my voice, which I thought, was laryngitis. So I said, hey, Dave, give me 10 days. I'm sure it'll clear up and I'll come to work. Turned out it was a paralyzed vocal cord. I was staring at the end of my career. Uh, but in early November of that year, I had a procedure done, got 80% of my voice back. And there you were still with a job in hand. I started a week later and I will forever be grateful to you for that. And the assignment of covering game six of the Stanley Cup finals in Philadelphia when Patrick Kane's disappearing goal became history. This is kind of your nature, Dave. You've helped a lot of us stay relevant in this business. Well, people, people have helped me. I, I think it's, it's kind of the way the business, I've always felt the business works or should work. And, and listen, I was thrilled to have you, George. You had a, a great uh, resume, a great uh, wealth of experience covering sports in this town. I had all the confidence in the world in you. And uh, fortunately, I had the luxury of being able to wait a little bit till you were able to join us. And uh, look, I, I'm glad it worked out. You were able to be there. You were at ice level for game six and uh, did a bang up job getting interviews for us. And, and I'm glad it, that it meant something to you because you could tell that you cared about it. You'd covered the Blackhawks for so long. And as I'd been around the team for so long, and it was it was just good to be able to experience that moment. I I was very happy for you, and and uh, you know you 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 try to somehow uh, help people and hope that if you're ever in need, they'll help you as well. And it's very important because there's been a lot of people that you've helped along the way, and it wasn't long after that that, of course. I became a member of WBBM as well. You grew up in Washington, D.C., and when you were a kid, President Kennedy was assassinated. That was November 22nd, 1963. So tell me a story I don't know. The effect it had on you is, I believe, you were an eight-year-old? I was eight years old. <clears throat> I was in third grade. We had the day off school that day. It was a, it was a cool, cloudy Friday, and 
my friends and I were playing in this wooded area near near their house, and it's around the middle of the day, one o'clock, I maybe a little bit later, and one of my friends, older brothers, comes running out and says, the president's been assassinated. Now, I didn't really, even, even at the age of eight, I wasn't really sure what assassinated meant. Yeah. Uh, but I knew it wasn't good. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. So, I mean, this just shows you how things were different back then. So what do you do? We ran to the local drugstore, which is where you went, you know, if you wanted to pick up the latest comics or, or bubble gum or baseball cards or whatever, and everyone's huddled around, a, of course, a black and white TV on the front counter at the drugstore watching the news coverage and, and the word that uh, the president had been shot. So... I lived about a, a block and a half from there. Uh, we all scattered. I ran home. I come home, run upstairs, and my mom and I think my sister have the TV on, and um, and my mother was crying. And it was the first time in my life I had ever seen my mother cry. That night, the networks, when they weren't showing news coverage, just went to this funereal music and black and white graphics. And it was just as an eight-year-old, you know, you really, that stuff really kind of hits you harder than the, the actual event that has just happened, right? Because I, I didn't fully understand what had just gone on. On that Sunday, they were taking the president's body to the Capitol uh, with a um, procession down Pennsylvania Avenue. So a friend of mine, and his father asked if I wanted to go with them to, to see it. So it's freezing cold. We go down there. And what I remember is the caisson with the flag draped casket and the riderless horse. Again, eight years old. Those are the things that kind of stay with you. They took the, uh, the casket to the Capitol Rotunda. We stood in line. I remember we were going to see the president lying in state, and I didn't even know what the term lying in state, but we're not, we're not in a state. We're in the District of Columbia. That's what <laughs> we were always taught in school. Yeah. So I didn't understand that. But we stood in line and for what seemed like hours. And again, it probably wasn't because it was, it was absolutely freezing and uh the, my friend's dad realizing he had two eight-year-old kids who were their teeth were chattering and their hands were turning blue decided that uh, we weren't going to get in for an, five or six hours and and took us home but it's funny things you remember from your childhood those images still stay with me very vividly to this day you actually left wbbm to come back home to dc and if not for an unfortunate circumstance there, who knows where your career could have gone? I, I was working at WBBM and I got a call from a guy at WRC in Washington, which was owned by NBC. NBC owned a number of radio stations back then. It was housed in NBC headquarters in Washington. Uh, the TV station there was the home of George Michael's Sports Machine. 
So George worked on the television side and I worked on the radio side. So I, I, I really was just, I wrestled with the idea of going, but I thought, will I ever get a chance to work in my hometown? And I said, yeah, this, this could be a good thing because I was, I was the number three guy at BBM. I could go there and be basically my own sports department and uh, be the sports director and do the morning sports. And so I took the job. And it's funny because my now wife and I had been dating for about a year. And I said, oh, by the way, I'm leaving. And to this day, she still says, you know, you never really asked me how I felt about it. You just up and left, but it all worked out. She came out there a few months later. And, but I, I ended up not long after I got there, NBC sold the station and it was just like the last episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Like the day my contract expired, the entire station was let go and it was turn out the lights. So at that point I was, I, I knew it was coming and I'd been trying to find something else and calling on my contacts in the business. One of whom was Chuck Swirsky at WGN. Mm -hmm. They, of course, in 1984, this was the Cubs were having a good year and, uh, they had Brian Davis was working in sports uh, for, for Chuck. Uh, Tom Scher had been there, but Tom went and replaced me, I believe, at BBM. So I, I worked on trying to get hired at GN. And finally, Chuck said, come out and, and do a week with Wally in the morning. And I'm like, okay, that's, that'll be easy, right? I mean, you know, only the king of radio and I'm coming in cold and, um, but it actually went well. Wally was very nice to me. I did a week on the air and it was the week the, the Cubs were playing the Padres in the playoffs and, uh, the week ended and I, there was no commitment from GN and I got back on a plane and went back to Washington to wait and uh, I think it was maybe a couple of weeks, uh, Chuck calls me and says, you got the job. And so at that point, um, I took my wife away for the weekend, my now wife, and uh, proposed to her, got engaged, went back to Chicago, and I've been here ever since. But I did leave GN, as you know, for eight years. But then I came back, and I've been there, back there now for 25. You have two grown children, and one has the distinction of having appeared on a very, very popular game show. My daughter, Lindsay, who, uh, who by the way, is the, the first female public address announcer for any professional sports team in Chicago. If, you know, allow me to brag on her for a moment. She's the PA voice of the Chicago Red Stars. Good for uh, her. Stadium. But uh, she was her senior year of college on Jeopardy. And, and when she was a kid, she'd come home from school and at 3.30, she'd watch Jeopardy while she had her after school snack. And she had taken the test a number of times. And I think her freshman year of college, she got to the audition stage in Chicago. She did well enough on the test, but didn't get picked for the show. But her senior year, she did it again. And uh, she got the call that they were bringing her out for the college tournament in Los Angeles. So needless to say, it was just a wonderful experience because we got to go with her and, uh, and be in the studio and they tape, I think five shows a day. And it was a really interesting process to watch. She and the other contestants 
really became very close. Some of them, I think she still corresponds with to this day. And it's been, uh, I don't know, nine years or so, I think maybe more. But she, um, she did very well. We weren't allowed to tell anybody how she did. Uh, you sign a non-disclosure agreement. You have to be, you're sworn to secrecy. So we couldn't even tell when we were in the studio, obviously we saw what happened, but we couldn't tell anybody. So we come home and we say, how'd she do? How'd she do? And it was absolutely mums the word. And, uh, but I can tell you now that the first day she won and uh, that qualified her for the semifinals. And in the semifinals, she led the entire day, but final jeopardy, she did not know the answer and mm. ended up losing. But she still, it was a great experience for her. It was very, it was really fun to watch the show put together, to watch Alex Trebek interact with the audience, which he would do, answer questions and talk. And you could tell he really enjoyed the college shows. He really enjoyed dealing with the students. I think he got a special kick out of that. I asked this final question to all my guests, but if not for the media business, what would you have been? Oh, I think I would have been a teacher. I think I would have hmm. taught. Yeah, I think I would have liked that. Um, I don't know how if I would have been any good at it, George, but uh, I, I think that uh, that that always held an appeal for me and uh but i have no regrets i've i've loved every minute of working in this business and uh and i hope to to stay at it here for at least a few more years personally dave i hope you stay in it for many more years because you really are a credit to our industry thank you dave edit for telling me a story i don't know george thanks for having me on i've enjoyed it my thanks to WGN Radio Sports, ABC Sports, ESPN, and the late and great Channel 44 for those wonderful highlights. And as always, a big thanks to TJ Reeves for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his fine mixing and editing, and Nick Tochi for our great graphics. And to our generous sponsors, Saranal Law Group, top-notch pros who will save you money on your real estate taxes, Dynamic Manufacturing, Honor the Legacy, Pioneer the Future, and the Vienna Beef Company, home of the iconic Chicago hot dog since 1893. By BetUS, a pioneer in the sportsbook industry for almost three decades, and the Polina Market, top purveyors of the finest meats and much more. Tune in next week for another fascinating episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. 
Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.